Returning to our uh, First Corinthians studies, in chapter 14, we're beginning with verse 26 to the at the end of the church the chapter, verse, verses 26 to 40. Um, let me give you a, just a really quick recap. The whole passage is about how to use the spiritual gifts in the context of public worship. And as you remember, the speaking in tongue, the gift of tongues, uh, was the prime, desired, favorite, even obsessed gift of Corinthian church. It is a supernatural, miraculous gift. And because of that, everyone wanted it. And although it is beneficial as a gift of the Holy Spirit, it was exalted in an unhealthy way. So the, to make the point, uh, Apostle Paul introduced the love principle, which is the love chapter. And Going back to the chapter 14, he's introducing two spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues and prophecy. And as I mentioned, because there are so many different types of approach between the charismatic movement and uh, the cessationist movement, the people who believe the miraculous gifts have ceased. So uh, in order for us to be clear, and more streamlined in one clear thoughts. Uh, there are definitions that I came up with, and let me review that one more time. Speaking in tongues is a gift of the Holy Spirit to pray in utterance, not understood by the speaker. The two types of uh, speaking in tongues were recorded in the New Testament, Acts chapter 2, seems to be the foreign language. And First Corinthians 14 seems to be unknown, static utterances. No one understands it, as the scripture says. And gift of prophecy is to speak a word of a message or report, prompted. I should really say revealed spontaneous by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of edification, encouragement, and consolation of the church. Once again, these are two extreme sides of it. Once, one, on the one hand, there are charismatic movement people who are saying it's a revelation of the Holy Spirit, it is God's Word, and they will even use the Old Testament uh, rhetoric and, and language into that specific word of prophecy and it does say it the Lord and the charismatic movement people will elevate the prophecies as, as authoritative as God's word which is not the correct and approach that we need to take and the other, the other extreme that I see a lot of evangelical leaders who emphasize uh, the scripture 
they're known as a cessationist who believe that all the miracle gifts have ceased. Uh, denounce all those gifts, including the prophecies and tongues, do not exist anymore. And they, their view is the prophecy, uh, speaking in tongues is only a foreign language, um, and that it, it, it must not be viewed as relevant and even practical in our days. The prophecy is, is just equated with the expository preaching. Um, but as you remember, some things are very clear from from our church's point of view. This is what we believe. The New Testament prophecy is not to be equated with the authority of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, because the Old Testament's final authority fell on the prophets, few prophets. The New Testament authority, final authority, fell on not the prophets, but on the apostles, original apostles of Christ. And there are many prophets who were practicing these gifts in a very traditional way also too, but their utterances at times uh, were right on the dot, but not necessarily it was timeless or universal at all. In this locale, the God's word was applied. So in that sense, with the danger of the word just, uh, has so many emotional baggages, and we need to understand the prophecy in this sense. It is prompted word that we can use by the Holy Spirit. The difference between the teaching or the, the pre- preaching compared to the, the prophecy the teaching and or the preaching is more prepared, planned, not spontaneous. And the preaching is a combination of gift of teaching and exhortation. A prophecy is the word that has prompted by the Holy Spirit. So that um, we concluded last Sunday that without even worrying about the terminology of prophecy, we are to seek thoughtful, intelligible words to encourage, to edify, to comfort one another. Five reasons or factors, and really the the rest of the verses, verse 2 to all the way to verse 25, Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to seek to prophesy over the tongues. Not that tongues are not important, but the prophecy is much more beneficial to the, to the body of Christ. The first reason was audience. The tongues are two God prophecies, two people. Second reason is beneficiary. Tongues benefit oneself in prayer. A prophecy is for Others, I should qualify the benefit oneself unless there is an interpretation of the tongue, and that is equated uh, as a prophet benefit of prophet prophecy as well. 
Number three is intelligibility. It is key concept of that. Paul is basically saying it's I better uh, we better know that intelligible words are edifying. And tongues are not intelligible unless there is interpretation, but prophecy is. And the fourth, the edification, it Paul says uh, boldly coming out and saying it's better to speak five understandable words to edify others rather than 10,000 words in a tongue that is unintelligible. Finally, number five reason and factor is a mature thinking. We are to be shrewd and wise. How to use each spiritual gift in a best way. So although there are signs for the uh, gift of tongues and the signs of, for prophecy, which seems to be a little confusing in there, the Paul's main point is, if you really think about Christians or non-Christians, believers or unbelievers, when you hear the unintelligible words, to the unbelievers, it becomes a bad sign, the negative sign that they will say everyone is crazy. But if they hear the intelligible words, which is prophecy, they will benefit. So that's a shrewd way of thinking. Same as the Christians or believers as well. So taking these five reasons and factors the theological background that he laid, he now comes with application and conclusion. And the two words apply. One is order in the public worship, and the second is authority. And as Robert mentioned, I wish I could skip the second part. (laughs) But we need to tackle that because as we mentioned in Crossway over and over, our posture to the scripture is a priori submission to its authority. A priori basically simply means predetermined submission to the what the scripture says as a final authority of our faith and conduct. So let's uh, ask this question. What principles should we follow in public worship? And in this context, is it strictly public worship? But in our context, we should apply any church meetings and gatherings. I think more applicable, probably, in home group settings or men's and women group settings than on Sunday morning. And as I mentioned Uh, the cultural context in first century Corinthian churches were quite different from us and it it looked like more of our home church group, home group setting than our Sunday worship. Verse 26, what then brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. And notice that there are two different things there. 
One is there's a prescription, principle, timeless principle. You see that? Command. Let all things to be, be done for building up. And there is also description of what's happening in first, first century Corinthian churches. Early churches was people were just bringing a hymn or a lesson or a revelation in a, a tongue or in interpretation. So this, this is the first principle we draw out of this verse. The first principle we should follow in public worship or gatherings, we are to be willing participants, not mere spectators in edifying the church. So if you imagine not a church building and not even a structure for church, but in a, usually the, somebody's home, the group, church member's home that, ha, that happened to have a larger house than typical person, people will gather. And then the st- structure of the, the services on early churches were not pre-planned and programmed and there was no people who are timing it. The people were gathering together, contributing what goes in the service. And that description is taken by the, the, the uh, charismatic movement, well-meaning people, and say, oh, church ought to be that way. So there, I've been to one of them. There's a three-and-a-half-hour service Sunday morning, which was phenomenal. It was so exciting for me to see what goes on. People dancing, and just anyone who could speak a word of prophecy would go up to the Mike and say things in a very fluent way. And then finally, very, very, very at the end, a lot of worship and singing. Very, very at the end, there's preaching. And preaching was weak. It was really kind of, <laughs> the whole show was about what goes on. Another extreme is it's... Um, Concluding that this is all cultural. But what aches my heart, even in our church, because it's so accustomed for us to be consumer-oriented people when we go to church. Even the idea of attend a church or go to church on Sunday, rather than being a church. So what goes on on stage? Our church is small enough, we don't need a stage. Is really the main part of worship service. So people are becoming more spectators as time passes by. In a small church like this, or the people who, the churches that have just a really bad organ or piano, unless congregation sings the worship doesn't sound like worship so people sing people used to sing and the hymns are relatively easy to sing along what happened these days because of just so much of multimedia and the worship leader sounds like a rock stars 
and the band blowing so loud, most people don't have to sing. Most people don't have to participate. In our participation, our contribution is not necessarily on stage. Everyone trying to participate and contribute. And that was a Corinthian problem. And if you do that in your home group, and you've been to home groups, then few people say and share too much too long. It's just dominated by one person or two. It's not fun. But everybody kind of mutually defer each other and encourage each other to share. It is uplifting. That's the idea. Would you pray with me? When we worship, we need to teach that. Oh, first, we need to model that first. So sing. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to be a good singer. God hears your heart. Sing. Your heart's out on Sunday morning. But would you pray with me to teach these to our kids? We have included them. It's so joyful to have our kids next to us at least the worship time and praise time. And most of us love that idea, don't we? But our church kids don't know how to sing. So look at the screen and, and I'll say, sing, sing. Why? Because the concept of worship is still very worldly. Something's going on in the in front, and they are supposed to be good at those things, and I'm not good at it. Therefore, I watch, because we do this in concerts, in movies, in any kind of gatherings that what goes on in the program. Participation is for building up. If everyone worships with all our heart and participates in spirit and in truth, that worship is electrifying. God is pleased. Number two principle, in public worship or gatherings, we are to do all things in order and harmony for the edification of the church. Verse 27, he touches on speaking in tongues. Says, tongue speakers first. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three. I don't know how long their services were. But it's wise, prudent to have three. Maximum. And in turn, and what, what happened in, in current day of charismatic services are like that. Everyone is speaking on top of each other. And the third guidance, instruction is, and let someone interpret. If there is no one to interpret, let each one of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Where? Alone, in prayer life. 
And he goes to, the application goes to prophecy, uh, people who prophesying as well. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And in the spirits of prophets, are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So think about the contribution made that worship service so rich, so dynamic, so colorful. Especially with few members gathering together in homes as well. And Paul's idea is the richness and contribution, bringing something to share. Did you see that? A hymn or prayer. He goes, his application is more than just tongues or prophecy. We are to bring those things. Richness is good. But the chaos and confusion was bad. Paul is admonishing Corinthians as also us too. The gifts of the Holy Spirit is not about you. The focus is not about you. The limelight should not be around about you, on you. The Holy Spirit does. Take the focus and glory to Christ. And in love, seek to edify, build up one another. How do you do that? Order and, and, and harmony. With two or three people, tongue speakers, and if there's no interpretation, let them be silent. Because unintelligible words do not edify. In terms of prophecy, the application is very similar, except that maybe up to three people prophesying share, I believe this is the word from the Lord. And let them share. And let them take one person at a time in order. And one person says, I have the word of the Lord regarding what you're sharing. And let that person, the first person, be seated and be quiet so that he or she stood up and believed that he had the words, she had the word. Do not speak over the other person. Harmony, difference, honoring, love. And then lastly, let the congregation, the mature leaders, the elders of the church, examine what they said. Whether to discern that it is of the Lord or it is not necessarily of the Lord and that 
guidance is needed, and mutual affirmation and discernment is needed. Weighing what's, what is said. So when you think about this order and harmony, there's one extreme is chaos, right? So we are not to go to that. But a lot of times, liturgical service, and the churches that I grew up in also too, taken to the, another extreme became a stoic, somber, somber, like funeral type of order. So liveliness, so kids here, being here in our worship, is actually that God delights us as his children, celebrating, rejoicing in the Lord. This is the day that the Lord has made. I, I think that's wonderful. But let's do it in an orderly fashion and harmonious and loving way. So the, it does not mean stoic somewhere orderliness, but orderly spontaneity, or should we say spontaneous orderliness. So far, so good. Before we tackle on the controversial passage, um, Michael Green, who wrote uh, his um, New Testament scholar, especially the early churches, I love his writings. He wrote a commentary on 1 Corinthians entitled To, to Corinth with, Lo- with Love. And he suggests seven criteria for weighing a prophecy. Number one, does it glorify God rather than the speaker church or denomination? Number two, does it accord with scripture? In other words, it is congruent with biblical teaching. Number three, does it build up the church? Number four, is it spoken in love? Number five, does a speaker submit himself or herself to the judgment and consensus of others in spiritual humility? Number six, is a speaker in control of himself or herself? This is in light of the spirit of prophecy is rest upon the prophet, meaning that in the name of the power and influence of the Holy Spirit and feeling of the Holy Spirit, we've seen that. And even not only the speaking in tongues or prophecies, uh, people saying, I can't control it because the Holy Spirit is making me saying all these things. But in, in Toronto blessings, we've seen that. People barking like dogs. People laughing without any control. The Holy Spirit is giving them so much joy that I cannot stop laughing. According to this passage, there's something weird, really weird going on. We need to discern that. The speaker is in control, should be in control of himself, herself. So difference can happen. Number seven, is there a reasonable amount of instruction or does it does the message seem excessive in details? This is a person who's taking over the whole service in the name of prophecy. 
And obviously, these seven uh, criteria is very helpful. Uh, I, I'm going to say this. I think that uh, on Sunday morning, when, when there is a limited time and the people are planned the service, uh, from time to time, we need to allow that spontaneity. Uh, by the way, this coming Friday, a Good Friday service, there will be a chunk of time, 40 to 45 minutes of praying for each other, encouraging each other. So that should be very mutual spontaneity, or orderly spontaneity. Uh, look forward to that. And, and our anniversary Sunday or the Thanksgiving Sunday, we asked the entire group, entire church to share. And there's some of the words. It was so edifying, so keen and sharp. We, we, we feel that Holy Spirit is really encouraging and directing us. And many of them came from women in our church. But on, the, on our day-to-day application, for those of you who go to home group gatherings tonight, your participation, your contribution of insight, and then behind the scene, encouraging one another, comforting one another, praying for one another, is actually New Testament way of worshiping together. So now, Number three, in public worship and gatherings, another principle is we are to give difference to spiritual leadership of male headship in the church. Verse 33b starts like this. As in all the churches of the saints, the woman should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission. As the law also says, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. I, would, I, I wish I could say, in conclusion, the message. <laughs> so when we, when we encounter this kind of passage, do you remember I said, ah, priori, submission to the authority? So we need to hang in there. Holy Spirit doesn't contradict himself. And sovereign grace of God is actually, he, God, knows what's better for us. So that with a keen mind, we need to learn what the context is saying and larger context is saying also too. Let me say this first. In light of the larger context of this letter and the, Old Test- the New Testament, there are clear things that we could shy away from. It does not mean absolute silence. Of woman, nor inferior value of woman. Let me go back. On the same letter, a few chapters before, in 1 Corinthians 11, 4-5, this is what Paul wrote. 
Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is same as if her head were shaven. The head covering meant the authority that God is placing on them. So in creation, that's what the law says. In creation, God has created role differences, not the equality differences, value differences. So man and woman are equal in every single sense. But they're not identical. They're there to be different, complementary with each other. So therefore, the, the whole idea of head covering or not is, is a male headship. The authority that God has given to the male as a spiritual leader. Does it mean male are always better? Interpreter? Discerner? No, not at all. Does it mean the men always demand naturally respect and they are so good at leading spiritually? No, some of them are really, really bad spiritual leaders. <laughs> but the responsibility and accountability to, to, to men that God has placed is this leadership as a male and husband and husband and wife. And when that happens in the church, the male headship is violated. That's one, one thing. So it, it's, really, um, it's really not about the speaking or praying and prophesying here. The problem was the woman not on, wanting to wear the, the head covering, negating male headship on them. But in other words, we could look at it as here Paul is actually stating very encouragingly man or woman could speak prophecies and pray. So is he contradicting himself in 1 Corinthians 14? Of course not. Other chapters, other passages, Acts chapter 2 verse 17 Apostle Peter this time is quoting from the Old Testament, Joel, prophet Joel, and says, on the Pentecost, day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down on the church, he says this, And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. One last thing. Acts chapter 21, verse 8 to 9, when Paul is coming back to Jerusalem, uh, Dr. Luke records this. Verse 8, On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven first deacons and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So 
It does not mean absolute silence. It doesn't mean, does not mean inferior value of woman. In the word, the context, the word speak has a lot to do with either speaking in tongue or prophecies. And regarding that, since Paul has said woman can prophesy or pray, then what is it? It is actually mainly a mixture of two things. There is a timeless male headship principle that we ought to apply. And the secondly, there is a unique circumstantial caution in this. To discover the difference is very delicate, isn't it? Imagine this. It's not our service, like when man and woman, who cares where, where you sit, right? There are people who are not your gender next to you right now, which is beautiful in our culture. But in the first century culture, people naturally flocked in. All the women sit in one side. All the men sit in the other side. And they pro- prophesied freely, standing up, And then people who are weighing the discernment. What if husband stood up and prophesied and his wife? I don't think that's uh, from from the Lord. They had a fight, big fight in the morning. You know what I mean, right? It actually violates the male headship. So while it is not... Uh, absolute physical silence of the woman or devaluing that. And by the way, male headship is the in light of the Trinity. God, the Son, Jesus Christ, is equal to God the Father in every sense, in terms of rights, in terms of privileges. But in terms of role, the Son always submits to the Father and glorifies Holy Spirit always submits the Son and glorifies the Son. Bring focus onto the Son. So we should never think of it as actually this gives any kind of weight into any cultural bias, male chauvinistic point of view. And if you're a male chauvinist person, you're male, see woman, you should be quiet. No, that's not it. (laughs) That's one extreme that people actually applied literally in every direction and devaluing the woman and suppress the woman and, and actually discourage any woman's leadership at all. In our church, let me tell you first, one of the most spiritual people, I mean, the, a lot of our spiritual leaders are women. I have a mixed feelings about that. I'm very proud and grateful for them and their interest and hunger to learn. So I, I am grateful. But I could say, second time, I, I'm a little concerned because culturally, men find their worth in making money and career and everything. And when they come to church, they say, oh, you do it. You lead this Bible study. Are you good at it? Meaning, oh, that's not important. That's kind of, I don't have to know Bible that much. A home group study, who cares about Exodus study? 
Because my, I'm, I am actually accountable for million dollars budget in our company. You see the difference? So we are to really encourage and charge our men to step up. The more men are being passive, the more women will grow in knowledge. And the, the, the more the woman grows in knowledge, the men are more insecure because she really knows better than me. So the, do, you, do you see my concern on these? The one extreme that we should avoid it is regarding the specific context and take that as blanket statement for all women's silence. Secondly, disregarding as totally irrelevant. It's first century, it's a culture. Actually, some of the commenters I respect, their opinion is that somebody during copying manuscripts inserted this. It wasn't really there. Because it's, it's that troublesome. May the Holy Spirit give us clarity. <laughs> Final. Fourth point. In public worship gatherings, we are to submit to scriptural guidance and authority for the edification of the church. Verse 36 is warning all the way to verse 38. And verse 39 to 40 is conclusion and summary. Verse 36, or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are command of the Lord. He's talking about the entire chapter 14. Moreover, the whole letter up until now. 38, if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Paul is writing in apostolic authority, equated as Christ's authority, Christ's delegated, given that authority. Conclusion is this, verse 39, so my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. For those of us that are INF, I'm INFJ, but for Myers Briggs, the J, people love Paul because of this reason. He summarizes in one sentence what he's been writing about in chapter 14. Do you, do you see that? His eager, enthusiastic recommendation is on prophesying. But he doesn't forget encouraging tongue speakers, which lest people misunderstand that tongue's bad. And his a passive affirmation is there. Do not forbid. Really quick summary that we've been, been learning. Um, Paul's warning to Corinthians is to see apostolic authority 
which is from our point of view, is a scriptural authority and submit in humility. What was Corinthians are doing? They were super Christians because of their miraculous gifts. And they thought in their own minds, they were most spiritual people. And Paul is saying, would you submit to the authority and guidance of the Holy Spirit? To the authority and guidance of Scripture God has revealed. So even in our confusing post-Christian culture, the church is just one by one flocking into the mainstream culture and the political correctness of social issues. We are to pay attention to Scripture as a final authority. And not just a static document that is there, but day by day, guided by Scripture. So, one last encouragement for all of us. Instead of thinking that this is only applicable to first century Corinthian church, would you think about your home group gathering? There is more room for interaction. Or I should mention, would you think about how to participate in your hearts as you sing, as you participate in your sharing, even in a few minutes? Would you bring something to contribute? You know, men and women's group is an exciting group, time. I mean, it's some of the incredible meetings we had only because people brought things to share, contribute to edify in a vulnerable way, in a powerful way. But if you expect leader to do everything, it's just not only kind of static, but no fun, no color. People do not really become edified. Where is most people get really challenged where rubber meets the road? It's, it's a man's group. It's woman's group. So this way, as you go to your men's group, woman's group, and home group tonight, would you think about something encouraging? Especially for a specific person? Would you think about intention? Oh, you've been on my mind. Can I pray for you? Set that person aside just briefly. Pray for that person. This word came to me. I don't know whether this is a prophecy or not, but I really want to encourage you from what I read, what I reflected, Holy Spirit prompted this sharing to you. That is how to be alive and vital in the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, even in 21st century. May God be glorified as we do so. 
Let's pray.